Well, welcome, community of faith. Welcome, those of you at home watching. I wanted to talk to you about something today that I think is going to be uh, really personal. It's the only miracle that's found in all four of the Gospels. And, and it just got me thinking. I, I was thinking back over the last couple of years, and I remember being at the doctor's office, and I was pretty sure that my second knee surgery had failed. And he had gone and done some tests, and he came back in, and he said, yes, Mark, it failed. And I looked, and I saw there were tears in my doctor's eyes, you know. I, I, I remember looking at him and going, like, i got to be honest with you, doc. I don't have anything left, you know. After all these months, it feels like that I've been in a chair waiting for this to, to heal. And he said to me, he goes, Mark, I know that you're tired, and I know that you've got nothing left, but I want you to depend upon me. I've got this, and we're going to do whatever it takes to make this work this time. And he went into detail about this whole idea that he had. And, you know, honestly, I didn't feel, I wasn't feeling encouraged per se, but I did lean into his faith. And he was the best knee surgeon in Houston. I knew that. He did the surgeries for the Rockets, for the, for the Texans. And, and, and so it, what a difference it made to have a specialist there. I want you to just close your eyes with me for a minute. Everybody across the room and at home, close your eyes. I want you to think about the most impossible situation facing you right now. Maybe it's your finances or Maybe it's that relationship. Maybe it's that son or daughter that seems so far away from you, from God. I don't know. Maybe it's a depression that you've battled for a long time. So many different things that it could be. Maybe it's something at work that's going on. We're going to come to the impossibility specialist today. We're going to see him in action. So would you just hold that thing in your mind right now? And you can look back up here. As we go through this message, I, I want you to be thinking about that. Because we're going to see that Jesus is that impossibility specialist. We're, we're looking in, in the Gospel of John, even though you can find this in all of the, the Gospels, all four of them. Um, I want to just read you just a little bit, John 6, 1 through 15. It says this, once this had transpired, Jesus made his way to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which some these days call the Sea of Tiberias. What had transpired? Well, what we've seen is the disciples were sent out two by two to go to cities all around Israel and to preach about Jesus and to tell about Jesus. And they had come back. And God had done some amazing things, some miracles, and uh, a lot of people had heard. And the thing was, they were really tired, though. So the disciples are exhausted. On top of that, they had just gotten word that John the baptizer had been cruelly murdered by King Herod, the evil king. He, he had been beheaded, and this was the one who had come before Jesus to prepare the way. He was actually Jesus' cousin, but... He had, he had been like a great prophet in Israel, and now he was dead. And the disciples were kind of seeing what the future might be going to look like for them, for Jesus, because it wasn't working out exactly like they thought that it would. So the, the disciples weren't in a good place emotionally. 
or physically. Verse 2, as Jesus walked, a large crowd pursued him, hoping to see new signs and miracles. His healings of the sick and lame were garnering great attention. Jesus went up a mountain and found a place to sit down and teach. His disciples gathered around. The celebration of the Passover, one of the principal Jewish feasts, would take place soon. But when Jesus looked up, he could see an immense crowd coming toward him. Matthew, in his gospel, records it this way. Jesus saw the multitude, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus never saw just a faceless crowd. He always saw each and every one of us, and he could see right through what was going on in our lives, right to the deepest part of us, and he saw how lost and how hopeless. I want you to know he does that today. He sees you today. You're not just part of a faceless crowd. He knows your name. He knows your situation. And this is the, the Jesus that we serve. So he's not judging. He's calling out to you right now, loving you. Goes on. Jesus approached Philip. Philip was one of the disciples. Jesus to Philip. Where is a place to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, Verse 6 is really important. Jesus knew what he was planning to do, but he asked Philip nonetheless. He had something to teach, and it started with a test. This is so interesting to me that Jesus already knew what he was planning to do. He was planning to work a miracle, but he came to Philip and said, Hey, Philip, where could we buy food for all of these People. It started with a test. A lot of times in our lives, we'll see that God tests us. He, he allows a trust test. That's what this was going to be. Do you trust me? Do you, you think that I can do this with you? And what's interesting to me is almost every time, he doesn't push us way out so that we're just, you know, so, you know, I, there's no way I could ever believe. He usually takes us just past where we've trusted him in the past. Because he wants to grow us. You see, when in my life I found that, um, you know, if I trust him to hear, then the test that will come will be here, trying to move my trust up. And it's always seems like it's just past the trust that I've had before, so that it's always a challenge to trust him. Now, if he just kept testing me at the same place, pretty soon I might get a little cocky and think, oh, I trust God all the time, right? But... He always allows that other circumstance to come into play. And he says, are you going to trust me now like you trusted me before? Are you going to see this continue to move? And he wants to move us closer and closer and closer to his heart. So he asks um, Philip, how are we going to do this? We need to feed these people. Philip answers in verse 7, I could work for more than half a year and still not have the money to buy enough bread to give each person a very small piece. Now, Philip is kind of like of the disciples. He's kind of the human calculator, you know. He's the one that's very thoughtful. Peter is always impulsive, always putting his foot in his mouth, but not Philip. Philip is always thinking, and he, he gives a really shrewd answer. He looks out there, and he says, hey, I, I don't think even if I spent half a year working and gave all of that to try to feed these people, there's no way we could even give anyone just, uh, they wouldn't even, not everyone would even get a little small bite. 
Now, he had already gone from Jesus said where, and he already had gone to how much, right? Because he was looking at the circumstances, and he was right. It didn't look very good. It didn't look like something could happen. He's, he's basically saying, hey, you know, I don't think there's anything we can do. In another of the Gospels, it says the disciples said, Jesus, you need to send them away so that they can go and, and find something to eat. Jesus, you need to teach them a lesson, you know, that God helps those who help themselves, right? Uh, actually, that's not in the Bible. Did you know that? That was like Ben Franklin said that, I think. Uh, but he said, you need to, you know, show them that, hey, you need to do better planning next time. At least bring some trail mix with you or something, you know, as you come out on these things to hear, hear Jesus. And if you look at all four Gospels, you see that they were calculating correctly because it says the place where they were was barren. The people, they didn't have anything to eat, so there was great need. And you put all of that together, and there's just, I mean, there's nothing there. So the disciples have given Jesus really a good answer when they look and say, you know, calculating it just doesn't look possible. That's not what we're going to be able to do. They'd only forgotten one thing. Who's sitting right there in front of them? Jesus. They had left him out of their calculations completely. And we so often do that, don't we? You know, I don't know about you, but in my life, I find that I like to try to, you know, figure it all out, work it all out, plan it all out, and, you know, whatever I have to do. And it was interesting because I, I kind of thought of the analogy this week. Marco and Karina Monroy and Laura and I last week, we went fly fishing in Colorado. How many of you have been fly fishing? A few of us. Well, it was the first time for them. And, and so basically they spent almost all of their time trying to get knots untangled, you know. But each of us, uh, you know, they would give us a guide. There's a guide for the two of us, for Laura and me, and a guide for Marco and Karina. And what I notice about myself is that if ever I get something in a knot, my first thing is I'm going to work it out. And so I would start working on my knot, you know, that I had made in the line. And, and by the time I'm done, it's incomprehensible completely, you know. And the guide would come over and just look at it. And he goes, next time would you just call me first, you know. And, and I began to think about that. I think that's what we do with God a lot, you know. A circumstance comes up in our life, and our first thought is, I gotta fix this, I gotta work this, I gotta, I, 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 what am I gonna do? I mean, I'm looking at the circumstances, I'm looking at my resources, it doesn't look, and, and by the time we're done, it's just a huge mess. And then maybe by that time we think, oh, whatever, you know, what can it hurt to give it to God now, right? Because I can't do anything. But God's going, hey, give it to me first, bring it to me first, and watch what I do. This might be a test of trust for you. I'm teaching you. I'm growing you. I'm bringing you closer to my heart. So be ready for God to work. I found that every miracle that we've ever seen recorded in the Bible, every miracle that we've ever seen at Community of Faith, and we've seen so many, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, it always started with a problem. It was always built on the platform of a problem. I want you to think about your problems differently 
Because maybe you're looking and you're saying, I've just got this huge problem. Well, this is just a platform for God to do something miraculous. If he's going to work a miracle, it has to start with a problem, right? And so he's wanting us to see it that way. Begin to see your problems differently. Begin to understand that the problem is, is really just God ready to work a miracle in disguise if we understand what it is. So many times it's a test of trust that God's trying to move us along. He didn't cause the problem. Maybe our own sinful actions caused the problem. Or maybe it was just because the world is broken and sinful that those problems came into our lives. But he allowed it. See, nothing can come into your life if you're a believer because he's got you in his hands unless it comes through his fingers of love. And so he allowed that to come into your life. Now, what is he going to do with it? What is going to happen with it? And we see that that's going to be a lot uh, really up to us. Verse 8. Andrew, the disciple who was Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Andrew, every time we see Andrew in the Bible, it says, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. How would you like to be known as someone's brother, right? I have that issue sometimes, from time to time. It's interesting because... Um, when I was growing up, Carrie, my brother, was always kind of in my shadow. He's a lot shyer than I am, and so he's kind of in my shadow. Laura and I and the family went off to the mission field for 10 years, and he started Woodlands Church. And when I came back, oh, you're Carrie Shook's brother, you know? So I had to kind of get used to that. In fact, someone came up to me in the mall one time and said, your sermons on television have changed my life. And I just looked at him and I said, thank you so much. But you should hear my brother out at Community of Faith. He's even better. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, you know. So, so uh, he's always known as that. But he comes up and he says, I met a young boy in the crowd carrying five barley loaves and two fish. But that is practically useless in feeding a crowd this large. It's so interesting to me that, you know, he started out pretty good. He said, well, I've, you ask what we have, and I've found something, and, um, but it's practically useless, you know. And, and so he kind of goes from like, well, I did what you said, but I'm, I don't see really anything working out. And I find it so true that so often we focus on the wrong things. Have you ever caught yourself doing that? You know, you start to focus on the wrong things. I, I read this week about uh, a, a Russian security guard back during the days of the Cold War, and he was a security guard for this this giant factory. And every time, every day, there one of the workers who was a really poor worker would come out with a wheelbarrow and a sack of something in the wheelbarrow. And the guard every time says, "Let me see in that sack." And every time he looked in the sack, it was just like wood chips and stuff. He said to keep my family warm at night. And finally the guard, after about three, four months of this, said, look, I don't care what you're stealing. I know you're stealing something. What are you stealing? You keep, I mean, I've dug all through that. Every time, ended up, the guy said, well, I'm stealing wheelbarrows. He had a wheelbarrow every time. You walk out, and the guard's looking. He's looking in the wrong place, right? We tend to do that so often. We'll be looking at our circumstances, Instead of God. And those circumstances start to look so huge and so big. Have you looked at God lately? 
He's so much bigger. You remember when the, the, the people of Israel were supposed to go into the promised land and he sent the spies in and 10 of them came back and said, those people are like giants. We're like little grasshoppers in their sight. It, it, there's no way. They live in big fortified cities. And two of the spies that came back says, our God said this land is ours and we need to take it. That's nothing to God. But the people listen to the 10 and end up having to wander 40 more years in the desert because they didn't believe. They, they didn't trust. They didn't hear God's word and trust it. Practically useless in feeding a crowd like this. A lot of us are Andrews. You know, we look at the, the millions of poor and destitute around us around the globe. And we, we look at what we have. And we say, you know, well, our tithe to the church, that would only be a few hundred dollars a month. What is that's just I mean, what what is that gonna do? What is that gonna what difference does that make? We tend to look the same way. Mark said to spend ten minutes in the morning reading my Bible in the Gospel of John. This is out of John, and just asking God to meet me through the day and walk with me through the day. But really, ten minutes, I mean, what is that really gonna do? We have this tendency when it's small things to just say, well, small is basically nothing. That's not what Jesus said. In fact, Jesus in one of the other gospels asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said five, because they had found this little boy with five loaves and two fish. He wasn't asking them because he wanted to know how many loaves. He was asking them to say, hey, look at what you actually have. Because whatever you have, that's what I'm going to work a miracle with. He truly is the Lord of the little. That's what he does. And so he says, I'm going to work a miracle with what's in your hand. Kind of reminds me of Moses in the Old Testament. Remember, he's standing before the burning bush. And God says to him, he says, God, how are they going to know that, 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 that you sent me? And he says, what's that in your hand, Moses? Oh, it's just a staff. I mean, it's a shepherd's staff. And he says, throw it down. He throws it down and it becomes a serpent. And then he says, pick it up by the tail. And Moses said, that's not how you pick up a serpent, right? <laughs> you know, I'm sure he was going like, uh, you kind of try to grab it behind the head or you stomp on it or whatever you're going to do. But pick it up by the tail is not a good thing. But he obeyed God and it became a staff again. And with that staff, the rod of God, they began to call it. He held up his hands and the, basically the Red Sea parted. He saw all kinds of miracles happen. That little bitty thing that he had in his hand already, he had always carried that around with him. And yet God said, what's that in your hand? I want you to take what's in your hand. I know it looks like a small thing, but I'm going to do something mighty with it. So get ready for me to work. Andrew felt like little meant insignificant, but that's not what it means to God. In fact, God sees each and every one of us, and he just looks at us, and he doesn't say, I want you to give a million dollars, or I want you to do this or that. He says, what's that in your hand? I read this week also about uh, an orchestra that was playing, and Sir Michael Costa was one of the great directors of all time, and he was directing this orchestra, and they had a huge choir, huge orchestra. And, I mean, the horns were blaring, the, the 
drums were going, the choir, the whole choir was singing, and the, the piccolo player said, what's the point of me? I mean, nobody's going to hear me with all of this noise. So he kept his piccolo up to his mouth, but he didn't play. Suddenly, Michael Costa, the great director, stopped everything, and he goes, stop. Where's the piccolo? He was not heard by the one who counted, right? The one who knew, the one who noticed even the smallest things. And God is like that. He sees us. He knows us. He loves us. He sees us wandering around like sheep that don't have a shepherd sometimes. You feel like that, like lost. And I'm just, I'm just in the wilderness. I can't figure out what's going on. And he looks at us and he says, Mark, what's that in your hand? What's that in your hand? And I might look at it and say, well, it's not near enough. That's not what he asked me. He said, what's that in your hand? I want you to bring it to me and see what I do with it. So he goes on in verse 10. Jesus says, tell the people to sit down. They all sat together on a large grassy area. Those counting the people reported approximately 5,000 men, not including the women and children. Experts tell us there were probably fifteen to 20,000 people gathered around Jesus. I mean, sometimes Jesus drew huge crowds. We don't think of that a lot of times. We just think of him sitting around with his 12 disciples or a few people out there. No, this was a crowd of 20,000 people that had gathered to hear him teach, to see if he was going to work miracles. Jesus picked up the bread, gave thanks to God, and passed it to everyone. He repeated this ritual with the fish. Men, women, children all ate until their hearts were content. When the people had all they could eat, he told the disciples to gather the leftovers. Jesus said, go, collect the leftovers so we're not wasteful. They filled 12 baskets with fragments of the five barley loaves. See, God never expected this little boy's lunch because they had found a little boy. He had five loaves and two fishes. He didn't expect the little boy's lunch to feed the 20,000 people, he was going to feed them. And it's interesting. Do you think he needed the five loaves and two fish to do it? He could have just, I don't know, he could have had uh, the fish swim through the grass to him or whatever, you know. <clears throat> He's Jesus, and he could have done it without any help at all from us. But he never works that way. That's not how he does it. I want you to see something really important here, though. The disciples, if you look at it, basically it looked like their faith had failed. It just looked like they didn't have any faith. Well, the truth is they had faith. It was just so tiny you couldn't see it. And I think that's true of most of us. You know, Jesus said if you have the faith the size of a mustard seed, which was the smallest seed that they thought of at that time, it's just tiny, then you can say to this mountain, move, and it'll move. That's what they had here. And so what we see is it looked like their faith was gone, but their obedience was still there. So they're all going like, well, we need to send them home. We need to, you know, what, what is this among so many? And Jesus said, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to divide them out and have them sit down in groups. So the disciples, they obeyed Jesus without even asking. They didn't say, well, why would we do that? That's just stupid. They're going to get really upset when we don't have anything to give them. They didn't say that. They just did what Jesus said. And that 
shows me something really clearly that when we feel like our faith is gone, maybe you're here this morning and you just say, I don't have any faith left. It's probably not true. Probably there's still that little spark in there somewhere. So what do you do? Obey. Take the next right, obedient, small step. That's all you have to do. He didn't say, well, sit around and try to conjure up faith. Okay, disciples, I need you to sit here and go like, God's going to do something. God's going to do something. He's going to do it, You know, and try to get all emotional about it. He just said, obey. Set them in groups. And so they put them in groups and they divided them out and set them in, in, on the grass just like Jesus said. And then Jesus had the loaves and fishes. And what the other gospels tell us, he would, he would break them in half and hand them to one of the disciples, and they would pass them out. It doesn't even say, it's interesting, it doesn't even say it was a miracle here, even though it was a huge miracle. It just said Jesus would pass them out. And what we see is the disciples, they had to, it, it, he didn't just put a big banquet table and all of a sudden, bam, all of it's out there. Okay, it's a buffet, you know, kind of like at a Las Vegas show or something. You can just go and, and no, he, each time, Handed it to his disciples. So what we see is the disciples had to keep coming back to the hands of Jesus. Coming back to the hands of Jesus. Coming back to the hands of Jesus. Because that's where the miracle was taking place. And I think that's true of us. If we look at these immense needs around us. If we see the, the needs in even some of the big houses of Cyprus. Much less the little hovels of Burundi. It just looks impossible. But if we're going to meet that need, we have to keep coming back to Jesus continually. Or we're just going to run out of steam. We can't do it. Some of the driest people I ever met were missionaries on the mission field. Some of the most spiritual people I ever met were missionaries on the mission field. But the ones that dried up were the ones that kept trying to do the work themselves instead of coming back to Jesus. Coming back to Jesus. Jesus, I need you to fill me. I need you to empower me. I need you to work through me. I need you to give me compassion because I just see a faceless crowd right now. Help me to see each and every person and how valuable they are to you and help me to, to, to move into that and then take this tiny little bit that I've got in my hands and, and, and multiply it like only you can do. I'm just going to keep coming back to you and watch you do it and watch you do it and watch you do it. So remember, every miracle that ever takes place takes place on the platform of a problem. I love that the disciples never questioned him. They just did it. They had, they had begun to, to move in this in their lives. They had seen it, some things happen, and he was building their trust now to the next level. Do you think they ever questioned if he could do that again? No, they knew that he could feed 20,000 people with hardly anything. So their trust grew. They saw God in a different light. They saw what he was. Jesus wanted them to know just because something seems small or insignificant doesn't mean that God can't use it in a powerful, powerful way. You think back through the Bible, he used a baby's tears to attract Pharaoh's daughter so that Moses was brought up in Pharaoh's house. And survived when they were killing all the little babies of the Israelites. He always is using small things like that. 
he used a, a little girl that just, just a, a little maiden and the Holy Spirit came upon her and she gave birth to a little bitty baby and a little bitty manger in a little bitty stable who grew up, died on the cross for us. Even though he never left that little bitty area of Israel, he changed the world. He changed us. That's what God does. He, he's the Lord of the, the little. I love the way Leith Anderson summarizes what happens when he says, Jesus did what Jesus does, what only Jesus can do. And he worked that miracle. And it didn't even seem, I mean, he made no big deal out of it at all. That was the amazing thing. He just kept passing it out, passing it out. The miracle took place in his hands. One of the things I think he was trying to show the disciples is that he does his miracles through us. See, he could have done it without them. And their unbelief, it seemingly, you know, seemed like, well, why wouldn't, just forget you guys. I'm going to go do this miracle. Don't you think sometimes if, if I was God, that's why I'm not God, because most of you would be a little pile of dust right now if I was God. You know, I'd be like, forget you then, you know, and I'm going to go do this on my own. That's not what God does. He loves us, and he says, my plan is to grow you. You know why? Because one day, we're going to rule and reign with him. I don't know what that means, but the Bible says that to the one who overcomes, they will sit on the throne with me and rule and reign with me. And, and it's just really clear. He's got a job for you for eternity. I mean, this is just boot camp. You're in boot camp right now. He's teaching you some things about doing that. How are you doing? Are you getting caught up and acting like boot camp is the ultimate? The monopoly money that you're playing with, you know, that you're just going to pass on to the next generation, you know, it all goes back in the box and you go in the box, right? And you pass it on and they play with it for a little while and God's saying, I'm seeing how you do this. I'm seeing how you work with this. I'm seeing if you're on my agenda, if you're focused on me, if you're believing me, if you're moving in trust with me. But I love when you look at the people that Jesus uses because there aren't any perfect people. He used the disciples. I mean, the miracle wouldn't have happened without them. He would break it, he would hand it to them. He would break it, he would hand it to them. And they would go and pass it out. Now, did they have a ton of faith? Well, he used them because they had so much faith. No, but they were obedient. They did what he asked. They took the next small right step of obedience with him, even when they didn't feel like it. They're probably going like, I don't know what's happening right now, but I'm just going to, you know, it's Jesus. You never know what he's going to do. And they just followed him and did it. God uses tired people. These guys were exhausted. One of the reasons why they didn't have much faith, because they were just tired. They'd already seen God do all kinds of miracles. So why weren't they expecting one here? Because they're tired. When you're physically exhausted and, and worn out, it's hard to have faith. It's hard to feel anything, really, maybe except discouraged. He also uses busy people. There were people everywhere, and the disciples, you know, trying to organize things and, and trying to figure out what they're going to do, and then he gives them a, a, a problem. In fact, it says in one of the Gospels, he turned right to Philip and said, you give them something to eat. How would you like that? 
Jesus, we can't do this. We can't feed people. You give them something to eat. I'd be like, <laughs> I think he's just, I don't know. He's setting me up, right? But he knew what he was going to do. It was always in his sovereign plan to do this miracle. He already knew, but he started it with a test. This really wasn't feeding the 5,000 or feeding the 20,000. It was the disciples' trust test is what it really was because it was really for them. One of the ways I know that, how many baskets did they get when they went back to get the leftovers? 12. How many disciples were there? 12. Each one of them looked at that basket full of food after everybody, it says in Matthew, they were chortazo, which means that, that they were so full to almost busting. And they still had these giant 12 baskets left over. Each disciple had one in his hand looking at it and going like, my gosh, look what Jesus can do. Look what he has done. Jesus uses busy people. He uses emotionally drained people. He uses people who lack resources. He, he uses insufficient people. Aren't you glad? I mean, if God was looking down today and going like, who can I use? You know, and some of us might go, oh, me, you can use me. Actually, most of us realize like, eh, yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't really, I don't offer much. But if you just say, I'll take the next small right step, that's who he's going to use. That's who's going to see the miracle. That's whose trust is going to grow. It's so interesting to me that we get so caught up in the circumstances that we fail to see our great God. David Livingston, the great missionary to Africa and explorer, he, he had an issue, a stomach issue that required him having milk every day. So he, had, he took a goat with him everywhere. Well, he was meeting the chieftain of a huge province and he saw the, the chief kept eyeing his goat, you know, and finally he said, would you like my goat uh, as a gift? And, and he said, yes, thank you. And he said, and here, I'll give you a gift. And he gave him the stick that it was in his hand, you know. And David Livingston, later that evening, he was looking at some of the guys that were helping him that were natives of Africa. And he said, I can't believe, because my stomach is messed up. And I can't believe I gave my goat to that guy. And all he gave me was a stick. I don't know, you know, what I'm going to do now. And they said, Dr. Livingston, you don't understand. That stick, that's not a stick. That's a scepter. He gave you his scepter. And when you hold that scepter up, you own everything that he owns. You now own all the goats in the whole province. But he didn't realize it. He didn't know it. And he wasn't utilizing it. And God, I think, is trying to show us some things like that sometimes. I've got this. If you'll trust me, I've got it. I like to see how this ends because it doesn't end like you think it's gonna end. It says this in verse 14. After witnessing the sign that Jesus did, the people stirred in conversation. This man must be the prophet God said was coming into the world. Jesus sensed the people were planning to mount a revolution against Israel's Roman occupiers and make him king. Well, is that not a good thing? They're gonna make him king. Well, he should be king, right? Look what Jesus did. So he withdrew farther up the mountain by himself. 
he, he got the wrong response from the people. It's the response that he knew. That's why Jesus was never real excited about miracles because he always saw that it was like, bless me, bless me, bless me, and bless me more. I'm gonna follow you if you'll keep doing miracles. And it brings us to why do we follow him? Why are we on this path with him? Is it the right motive? You see, later on in this very same chapter, he spoke some really hard words, and it says almost everyone left him. Almost everybody, except the 12 and a few others, left him because he gave this hard message. So they followed him for his miracles, but they crucified him for his words. And, I, and Jesus, if you could say, he, I don't think that he was discouraged to the point of sin, but it's discouraging when people walk away. And he looked at the disciples and he says, will you leave also? And Simon Peter said, Lord, where would we go? You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. And you see why they were following him. It was a whole different motivation. It wasn't to get their stomach filled. It wasn't to get the physical blessings. It was to know him, to walk with him, to hear his words, to let them soak in. And, and that makes all the difference. You know, the fact that something is impossible, if you're a believer, is no excuse not to try. It's impossible. This can't be done. Exactly. That's what God's been waiting for you to see so that he can do it. And when he does it, who gets the credit? You? No, him. Because it's impossible. Close your eyes again just for a minute and think of that situation again. Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, he said, when it comes to God working, there are always three phases, impossible, difficult, done. And he saw much of China. He's responsible for almost every Christian that's in China today of the millions and millions of Christians that are there. Impossible, difficult, done. You hear the Lord saying, my little son, my little daughter, what's that in your hand? Well, not very much. I don't have much left. It's okay. Give it to me. In fact, give all of yourself to me afresh. I give you me. I give you my hopes, my dreams, everything. I'm not following you so that you'll fill my stomach or bless me, bless me, bless me. I'm following you because you have the words of eternal life. Give it to me, little son, little daughter. And watch what I do. Take the next small right step of obedience and watch your trust in me grow as I work the miracle that only I can do. Father, we come to you and we do offer that to you. When we look at what's in our hand, it's not very much. Just not very much. We don't understand how with the circumstances all around us that that can make any difference at all. We don't feel any faith right now. We're just discouraged and tired.
but we will obey you. We will put it in your hands. Show us the next small right step. As we read the Gospel of John, show us the next small right obedient step. We'll take it, and we will watch you part the waters. We will watch, watch you bring salvation. We will watch you in action. Come, kingdom of God, upon us. Be done, will of God, over us, and let nothing stop what you have in mind for us. In Jesus' name, amen.